the historical revisionists are going after everyone. It's Jane Austen. I'm not sure who's going to be next. Mozart, Shakespeare. This whole idea of decolonizing uh, curriculums, if that's not the stupidest idea that academia has ever had, I would say it's definitely in the top one. Outside of the frenzied headlines about woke warriors cancelling Jane Austen and stately homes, we're living in a period of renewed consideration of Britain's colonial history. The British Empire began before the English Civil War and shaped our country for 400 years. At its height, it covered almost a quarter of the entire world's population. Beyond statues and street names, how is the empire still shaping our lives today? British culture is still deemed globally the hegemonic culture. And so in order to participate in the global system of governance, you have to take on the kinds of legal structures and the civil service structures and the governance structures of the British. Britain wanted to profit from the resources of the human beings, the land of Africa, of the Americas. And so they invented racism in order to justify the exploitation of these people and places. And we're still living with those legacies today. We see it in the criminal justice system, we see it in our healthcare system, and we see it in many other places as well. Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, how did the British Empire write the rules of today's economy? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm super excited to be joined by Dr. Kojo Karam, lecturer in law at Birkbeck and author of Uncommon Wealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. Hi, Kojo. Hi, Isha. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being with me. And I just heard that you've been shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> yeah, snuck onto the shortlist, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> Casual. You know, really excited about that. Yeah, yeah. So glad that people are, seem to be interested in the book and, you know, really looking forward to getting your thoughts and reflections on it and talk about how it relates to a lot of the issues in our society more widely. Absolutely. Let's dive in. So, just as a kind of overview, from the National Trust to Kew Gardens, lots of organisations, as I said in the intro, are trying to kind of reckon with Britain's colonial past in some way. But the changes are often symbolic, like renaming streets, for example. You're arguing that there is an economic aspect which still gets ignored. So let's start with you telling us a little bit more about that. Absolutely. So I think the book was written kind of in conversation with the grown focus on issues of decolonization and empire over the last few years. You know, it was initially started and written, you know, prior to the death of George Floyd, which sparked this kind of national conversation around the legacy of empire in Britain's public spaces, of course, the pulling down of the Edward Colson statue and all these different institutions from universities to concert halls to, you know, the National Trust, all reckoning with how empire might have informed the way in which they operate in the contemporary age. And I think that a lot of those changes, I don't want my book to be kind of dismissal of the significance of the pulling down of something like the Edward Colson statue. That's obviously a, a real lightning rod in terms of our historical reckoning with, with the legacy of empire. And, you know, fantastic experience if you're in Bristol to not have to walk past a, a slaveholder every single day on your way to work. But I did feel a kind of discomfort with the way in which the entire conversation was being bracketed in this cultural and symbolic 
sphere, you know, becoming this other topic in the culture wars, it almost became as if the primary driver of British imperialism was the building of statues across the world. And this is something that I think became a very comfortable topic for people who wanted to suppress conversations around empire, you know, to make it an issue that, well, if you're concerned with university curriculums, if you're concerned with the names of roads and the names of public squares, if you're concerned with exhibitions and what's being displayed in our galleries and you might be engaged with questions of decolonization or questions of the legacy of empire but if you want to be concerned about leveling up if you want to be concerned about the left behind if you want to be concerned about wealth inequality if you want to be concerned about corporate governance then you don't have time to be thinking about these long gone historical issues like empire and decolonization leave that to the kind of intellectual chattering classes who care about this question of symbolism and real people need to be concerned with wealth inequality, precariety of employment, and all the things that are affecting our lives on a day-to-day basis. And I really wrote this book to try and uh, explode that dichotomy that was being driven up to make it clear that if you are concerned with questions around leveling up, if you are concerned with questions around precariety of employment, the changing of labor relations, the changing of the asset economy, then you need to be wrestling with the very real, very material history of both empire for 400 years, like you mentioned, and particularly the transformative moment of formal decolonization that happened in the middle of the 20th century and what that did to the actual dynamics of capitalism across the globe. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's such an astute kind of point to lift up this false dichotomy that exists between the kind of the idea of the British nostalgia for empire conversation being a kind of purely cultural or symbolic one, whereas economic issues are falsely kind of separated from that and placed in a different different sphere of conversation. Just before we kind of go deeper into that, because obviously there's lots to unpack there, I just wanted to I know that there's there's some who are skeptical of the importance of empire in the present day. You know, a lot of folks say that's a kind of bygone issue. So could you quickly lay out why the empire was so significant to Britain and the UK and and, and why it remains so? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I use this phrase in the book that, you know, when we talk about the British Empire, we often say something like, well, Britain had an empire, you know, had an empire going across the world. You know, I said it, you know, I think we said it when we introduced this book that Britain had an empire. But I like to say in Uncommonwealth that in terms of actual historical understandings of how the British state came into being, it's probably more accurate to say that the empire had Britain in terms of the constitutional allegiance between what we now consider to be the Union, the unification of Scotland and England was very much driven and inspired by the potential imperial wealth that could be facilitated by the unification of Scotland and England. You know, this is something where if you read the contemporary poets like Robert Burns of Scotland, they make that very clear that they consider the Scottish aristocrats and nobles to have essentially been bought by the potential profits of England's already burgeoning empire. England's colonial structure predates the Act of the Union by a significant period of time. By the time we get the Act of the Union in the early 18th century, we already have England in a colonial relationship with Jamaica and Barbados. You know, it already has the Virginia slave colonies. It already is an imperial structure, this imperial realm in the language of the Elizabethan age. This is something that 
has influenced the way in which our constitutional structure functions. This is something that has obviously influenced the way in which our economic relations came into being over the next 300 years. This has influenced everything as practical as the way our property laws function or the way our tax laws function. And so they obviously impact the way in which um, wealth inequality is accelerated in the United Kingdom in comparison to a lot of the other kind of standard bourgeois European nation states. And so the role of empire is something that stretches from, if you think about it in terms of our imaginings of history, it stretches from the time of William Shakespeare and comes to an end around the time of the Beatles. And so, you know, the idea that that 400 year history, which influenced the wealth and development of the United Kingdom from a political angle, from an economic angle, from a legal angle, as well as from a cultural angle, has no impact on the way our economy functions today, I think is something that doesn't stand up to inquiry. Absolutely. And I, I want to ask a little bit more about that, because I know that sometimes discussions of our colonial history focus on empire as a kind of expression of racism and hatred and various other things for black and brown people. But it would be great to hear more about the economic motivators for Britain expanding its massive empire, as well as the way in which colonialism and empire actually kind of made its way back to Britain and to damage and, and uh, impact this country itself as well. Could you explain a bit more on, on those two things? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what I try and do in the book is show how the way in which we usually primarily engage with the question of empire, which is about the kind of vicious racial supremacy that we saw being imposed across the world, the kind of, you know, massacre of populations or extracting of wealth from different territories across the world relied upon a certain kind of racial hierarchy. We talk about empire and race, and I try and relate that back to the material basis. Not to say that that isn't important, but that that importance is part of this process of wealth accumulation. The racism of the empire was a necessary part of dehumanizing populations in order to erase their claim over the property and resources that they were placed over and therefore being able to facilitate the extraction and transfer of resources across the world. I think we need to remember, even those of us who are committed towards undoing the kind of racial legacy of empire, to remember that that is not the reason why people will have you know, got on boats and sailed to India or to Kenya or to Nigeria. You don't sail halfway across the world just to simply racially abuse someone or to you know impose a certain racial ideology of someone. You do it because... By doing so, you're therefore able to justify the discrediting of their claim of ownership over their property, and you're able to extract gold from, you know, what was the Gold Coast, what is now Ghana, or you're able to extract all these different resources across the other parts of the world. And so by talking about how the racial part of the imperial project was connected to the economic motivations, the ability for the British Empire, and particularly the private companies that were partnered with the British Empire, to be able to really put in place the building blocks of contemporary global capitalism, I think helps us to avoid, like I say, the contemporary mode of suppressing conversations around empire by saying, well, this is simply, you know, racial justice politics. This is simply things that are of concern with a racial minority. Yeah, you might want to talk about empire, you might want to decolonize the curriculum because you want to be more representative or you know you want to have more diversity in the curriculum. But this isn't something that really connects and has an influence on the situation and the, the life chances of people who aren't racial minority groups. And I think by connecting those two, we're able to kind of move beyond that simple dichotomy. 
Absolutely. Thanks so much, Kojo. So let's talk more specifically about how some of the economic legacies of the British Empire are with us today, because that was a really brilliant start. So starting with outsourcing and public-private partnerships seems to make sense to me. So today, companies like Serco and Atos are contracted by the government to deliver public services like border control and prisons and COVID testing. Um, But you say in the book that relationships like this actually existed centuries ago with companies like the East India Company. So could you explain for listeners the connections between the two? Yeah. Um, So I think a lot of the connections is on the way in which, you know, what was once called the mother of parliament, the imperial parliament, Westminster, how the British state has come into being and came into being, you know, and people can read people like Tom Nairn and Perry Anderson who are fantastic on the way in which imperialism orientated towards externalization of capitalist relations, state formation that the British nation state came to be. This is something that is not new when we think about the kind of default reliance upon private capital and outsourcing that we saw, you know, at the pandemic in terms of it's one of the great examples of this. This is not something that's new in the British state. This is something that is a consequence of the way in which the British state came into being. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, we only get the unification of England and Scotland and the formation of the kind of United Kingdom state through this imperial project. And the way in which the imperial project really manifested itself within the United Kingdom in comparison to the other European empires. When we think about the French empire, we think about the Belgian empire. One of the things that's really distinctive about the British empire is so much of global imperialism wasn't a kind of state-driven prospect. It was outsourced to these private companies or ostensibly private companies, places like, you've already mentioned, the most famous of them all, which is the East India Company. But they were the largest and most dominant, but far from unique. We can think about the Hudson Bay Company that essentially ran huge swathes of North America to its own private fiefdom. We could think about the Royal Africa Company when we're talking about transatlantic slavery and Edward Colston. We need to remember that this is someone who was a director of you know, a private company in the Royal African Company that had the monopoly for the slave trade, which was what allowed him to become so wealthy. We can think about the Royal Niger Company responsible for the unification of, you know, the nation state of Nigeria, which is looking like being some sort of economic powerhouse in terms of the 21st century. We can look at all the way up to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company and, you know, its role in terms of the oil refineries in the Abadan region of Iran. All these private companies play such a huge role in extending Britain's economic control around the world. And they did so in partnership with the British state. But I think this had two major consequences. It formed a particular reliance upon private capital within the Westminster state, which I think extends to today. And therefore, we see the United Kingdom is in the outsourcing capital of Europe by accident. This is part of the kind of default governing dynamic of Westminster. But I think it also, in terms of the historical memory of empire, had a significant role in the amnesia that we have around empire in Britain today. It kind of outsourced also the memory of empire. The kind of British national story, the state-based story, became the story that we all learn in history of, you know, everything from Henry VIII to the gunpowder plot to, you know, World War II, all the things that are part of the British island story. And what happened in India, what happened in Nigeria, you know, what happened in Singapore, you know, these aren't part of 
the British story. This is the story of the East India Company. This is the private accounting details of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. We don't need to know about this because it's not part of the national British story. And so not just outsourcing the role of empire, but also outsourcing the memory of empire. And I think by returning to who were these companies, what did they do, what was their relationship to the state, and most crucially, where are they now? Because a lot of these companies didn't disappear. You know, the Royal Niger Company is Unilever. The Anglo-Iranian Oil Company is obviously BP, and they still play major roles in the global economy and the British economy, even in 2022. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, as you just said, the oil and gas company BP uh, used to be British Petroleum, but before that, it was the the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Can you tell us a bit about the history of BP and how it became the company we know today? Partly because, obviously, it's been in the news so much recently after they raked in bumper profits of £9.5 over the past year. Um, And in the midst of these conversations that we're having in think tanks like NEF about a windfall tax being used to kind of tackle the cost of living crisis. I think it's really helpful to think about the history of companies like BP to help us understand how our imperial history might feed into what we're the response to how we're dealing with the cost of living crisis today. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, so a little bit for our listeners about the kind of history of BP. I think it's a fascinating history, which again, we're not told. It's, it's all, it's all, externalized from our for our understandings of how the world came into being but bp is is one of the the latter in this conveyor belt of british private companies that really facilitate imperial control around the world they emerge at the turn of the 20th century through the kind of initiative of a businessman called william knox darcy um initially even prior to being the anglo-iranian oil company they start off as the anglo-persian oil company and they're able to get a monopoly over the cultivation of oil in the abadan region of what britain then called persia iran this results in huge bumper profits for the anglo-iranian oil company the british government are obviously in very excited about this and not only you know providing them the ability to you know have the wherewithal to extend that control around the world but also enter into a formal stake of the company able to buy through a one-time anglo-iranian oil company lobbyist winston churchill a stake within the company which allows them to be able to help power the first world war and then the second world war and so everything seems to be going well in that first half of the 20th century for the anglo-persian oil company and the british government then starts to enter a little bit of a problem when you have in this age of decolonization after the second world war you have the spread of what then was referred to as third world nationalism and so this wave of new leaders across africa and asia you know and then of course the caribbean too who were looking to use the newfound powers of sovereignty of statehood to have much more of a kind of national sovereignty relationship to private capital than had existed under the empire and in iran the kind of representation of that and became also representation for it all across the world was the prime minister Mohammad mozadek elected in 1951 and so mozadek upon election looks to try and use the oil of Iran in order to essentially fund his imagining of a new welfare state, you know, fund health and education and welfare and all of the things that curiously were being implemented right back here in the United Kingdom by what we now remember as the most progressive government in British history, 
the Labour government of Clement Attlee, the post-war welfare state government, you know, the government of council houses, the government of the NHS, and of course, the government of nationalising many of Britain's failing um, resources itself, from coal to rail. And so you might think that the Attlee government would have at least some understanding of what Mossadegh was trying to do with Iran, nationalising the oil in order to be able to fund this welfare state. But that was not the response of the Attlee government in that particular moment. They decided that this kind of weaponization of national sovereignty by these third world leaders was essentially an open declaration of war. They tried to get a Security Council grant to be able to launch a war on Iran. They took Iran to the newly found ICJ in an attempt to try and have their nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company's territory marked as being against international law. They failed in both of those endeavors. And so they went to, you know, more nefarious tactics through partnership with a the United States, you know, encouraging the Eisenhower regime to believe that Mossadegh was the kind of beacon of a new age of communism across the third world. They were able to get the support to launch a coup d'etat against Mossadegh. He was removed from office, placed in house arrest. A new prime minister was put in place, and the refineries were quickly returned back to the Anglo-Iranian oil company, as well as to a couple other American oil companies. And it's at that moment that the Anglo-Iranian oil company haven't been a major factor in this international scandal, decide that this might be a good time for a bit of a a rebrand. You know, like any good business, change the name, keep the brand fresh, and that's when they become British Petroleum and obviously become BP. And the um, purpose for me kind of telling this story, as I do in the book, is to put it in conversation to what is the relationship between, um, you know, the kind of people of a nation and the corporations of a nation, even in 2022. You know, the way in which we're taught to think about empire, you know, tying it to kind of, patriotism and national pride and something that Britain should feel proud about and we shouldn't be made to feel like we've done something bad would encourage people to read the story of the Anglo-Iranian oil company and Mohammad Mossadegh and feel like, you know, they need to be in allegiance with the Anglo-Iranian oil company. You know, this is a British company after all. But we then bring this conversation up to 2022, as you mentioned, and in the midst of a devastating cost of living crisis where energy bills are skyrocketing month on month you know we have the chief executive of bp talking about how the lifting of energy caps has turned his company into a cash machine we have the government which protected the anglo-rain oil company against the people of iran in the 1950s now protecting bp against the people of britain in 2022 you know this question of kind of patriotism around these old imperial companies is something that i want to trouble because it's not simply with kind of escalating bills we can think about bp's being constantly cited as tax avoiding firms in terms of receiving tax rebates from from the state Um, we can think about the environmental damage that's bp have visited upon the globe you know I'll end with this, you know, I think um, at the time of the Deepwater Horizon disaster, still the largest environmental disaster on record, um, where the BP oil spill devastated the Gulf of Mexico, the then London mayor, Boris Johnson, responded to criticism about BP as saying, well, anyone who's simply criticizing BP, whether that be Barack Obama, whether that be these environmental organizations, they're simply anti-British. That's why they're they're criticizing BP. You know, this is a question of patriotism. And I think what I try and do in the book is 
make people think, well, how patriotic are these companies back to you if you are a pensioner, you know, living in Sunderland and having to, you know, ride the bus because you're unable to heat your own home, you know, or living in, you know, Southport, you know, the Northwest, which is where my family are from. And you can see the devastating impact that austerity and then the cost of living crisis having on people's lives. Should they feel in solidarity with a company like BP when they're having to pay bills and BP's not having any kind of reduction in profits in order to help them? So I think by retelling these stories around empire, we can try and move this question away from this kind of identity politics question around patriotism, question around allegiance, and look at the material impacts and think about what happened during decolonization and how has that changed the society and the economy that we live in up to today. I mean, it's just so telling, that quote that means they hate Britain, because it's just such a kind of flagrant conflation of the state and what are supposed to be independent companies, which which seems to kind of, I guess, just really show what, as you say, the depth of what's going on here, that the idea that the British state is kind of was and continues to be bedfellows with with companies that do their kind of dirty work in lots of ways in exchange for protection. And I think it's just such a crucial time to be having this conversation. It's perhaps maybe to me, it seems like the most urgent conversation to be having right now, because we're trying to find solutions to the cost of living crisis. And we're trying to figure out what are the real root causes of what's going on here. And it's just so clear from your work that it goes way beyond, you know, uh, the 2008 financial crisis, it goes way beyond neoliberalism. This is, this is, you know, 400 years in the making and, and people need to be aware of that. So I'm just so grateful that you, that you've written this and we're having this conversation. I want to move on to talking about non-DOM tax status, because I know that that's also been in the headlines recently um, as another kind of economic hangover of the empire. So we talked on the podcast before about the the scandal surrounding the chancellor's wife, Akshata Murthy, who has avoided paying around 20 million in tax due to her non-DOM status. So could you tell us a little bit about the origins of of non-DOM tax status? Something tells me it's linked to uh, colonialism. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So I think that, you know, it's it's, it's been interesting, you know, the book was published in February and over the kind of lifespan of the book, we've had first, you know, the focus on the presence of, you know, Russian oligarchs, again, something that tried to be like bracketed out and made to be seen as those, you know, as a particularly malignant and part of kind of Russian culture. That's why we have all these Russian oligarchs within London. But you know, I thought it gave, provided me an opportunity to talk a little bit about, well, why have they all come to London? Like, what is it about London? Is it fortunate that all of these oligarchs, not just Russian oligarchs, but Saudi oligarchs, Chinese oligarchs, Nigerian oligarchs, all want to place their base of operations in London? Are they all just massive Charles Dickens fans? Or are they all just, you know, really want to see the Rolling Stones? Or is it maybe that the legacy of our imperial economic and legal relations are particularly useful towards the wealthy of the world in terms of being structured of protecting their wealth and not placing those demands of state obligation that they might find elsewhere. So we've had that story. And then, of course, we had the story about the non-DOM status of Rishi Sunak's wife. And I think that the tax and um, financial structures of the British Empire is something that was not dismantled through this confrontation of decolonization, which means that we're now in a completely different place in 2022 than we would have been in the late 1800s when we still had the British Empire being the largest empire that the world had ever seen. What I'm 
think we're trying to think about when we talk about things like the non-dom rule, which was established in order to encourage colonialism, to allow people who had property outside in the kind of metropole of the British Empire, the center of the British Empire, in the colonies to not have to pay tax on those colonies and to encourage them to go and do that kind of private entrepreneurialism that I mentioned with people like William Knox Darcy. And it was kind of consolidated into what we now call the non-dom rule in the early 20th century to allow people to try and come back to Britain and to say that if you do come back to Britain, don't worry, you won't have to pay tax on the property and wealth and assets that you own in the remaining parts of the empire. And so this is a direct legacy of empire that we still see being exploited by not just now British colonialists, but also people from all around the world. This is what allows and encourages Russian oligarchs and Saudi oligarchs to come and make their base of operations in the United Kingdom. Another element, which is a part of Britain's imperial legacy that also attracts them here, is the spider web of Britain's overseas territories, which are, of course, at the very cutting edge of the global offshore economy. And so here I'm talking about, you know, for example, just for starters, what the Tax Justice Network detailed as the top three corporate tax havens in the world, which is the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, and Bermuda, as well as, you know, Guernsey and Jersey and many other of the British overseas territories. These places during the period of decolonization when Jamaica and Ghana and Kenya and all these other places became sovereign nation states and often elected leaders like Mohammed Mossadegh, who were taking a much more confrontational relationship to private wealth and private capital and looking to use the powers of sovereignty in order to hold global capitalism you know, much more to account. Places like the Cayman Islands, places like the British Virgin Islands represented themselves. You know, the, the Cayman Islands wasn't even governed as an independent colony, it was governed as part of Jamaica during the period of the empire. And then following decolonization, it represents itself as a place through which the offshore economy can really come into fruition. We get the passing of all these secrecy laws, we get the passing of all these tax avoiding laws, the lowering of the tax demands, the implementation of the ability to be able to register interest and register beneficial interest without those being declared. And these places become the hideouts of global capitalism because of the close relationship that they continue to enjoy with the city of London. You know, these are not independent countries when we're talking about the Cayman Islands or the BVI. These are British territories. This is still under the sovereignty of Westminster today. And the relationship that they have with the city of London is the reason why people want to place their operations in London. People want to place their life in London because there's an easy access to be able to protect your wealth and protect your riches, either through things like the non-dom rule or through things like setting up blind trusts and registering them in the Cayman Islands. And this is part of the British imperial legacy that has devastating impacts on the wealth inequality of this country, which is what is causing such destruction to people, you know, in the so-called left behind areas of this country, you know, rather than the blame for the kind of economic abandonment and the kind of growth of precariety and the worsening of living standards that people are wrestling with in, you know, parts of the world, the United Kingdom that I consider as home, rather than the blame of that being put on immigrants and being put on the woke and, you know, changing gender relations or whatever else, you know, the tabloid press might want to put it on, 
what I try and do in the book is connected to the way in which the legacy of empire continues to accelerate wealth inequality through things like the non-dom tax rule and through things like Britain's relationship with its overseas offshore territories. Yeah, I mean, tax havens, I think if I understand you correctly, you're saying that tax havens kind of became possible because the laws and regulations in Britain itself didn't apply to overseas colonies and that this has kind of, you know, kept a lot of the stuff that's going on behind the scenes, I guess, just that. It's kept it kind of all hidden. And that brought up for me what you were saying earlier around the idea of the violence being kind of outsourced and taken off of the kind of mainland in order to keep it also out of the public consciousness. And it made me think about the Home Secretary's recent plans to detain people seeking asylum in the UK, thousands of miles away in Rwanda. And I'm wondering if those things are linked for you. Would you kind of see this as, as a continuation of that attempt to keep certain things out of sight and out of mind? Absolutely. I think that so much of our understanding of Britain as a political territory is relying upon this amnesia of a separation between Britain, the island nation that we're familiar with, and this entire global spanning empire that stretched, you know, all the way from Australia to the Caribbean. And, you know, this is an amnesia that was very much cultivated through the structure of the British Empire by that reliance on private corporations and by that outsourcing of what happened around the empire and this bracketing off of the national story away from the global story. But this isn't something that actually plays out when we look at the historical development of the United Kingdom and we look at things like, you know, we have this idea around World War Two and World War Two is when Britain stood alone and when, you know, the little island of Britain by itself was able to repel the aggression of European fascism. But, you know, when you actually read the things like the transcripts of the King's speeches at the time, you know, he's constantly saying this empire is what is what's fighting against, um, you know, Nazi fascism. You know, we know that the million volunteer troops that came from India in order to fight in World War II is the largest volunteer army force that's ever competed in any kind of conflict. We know that the Caribbean airmen who would then contribute to the Battle of Britain would then come back to the United Kingdom in the post-Windrush generation, but be treated as though the uh, kind of foreign invaders who, yeah, were just as as unwelcome as the as the Nazi invaders that had just been repelled. This kind of amnesia around the global structures of empire. There was a poll that was asked at the last Commonwealth Games about naming countries of the empire, of the Commonwealth, in fact, the kind of aftermath of the empire. And it found that one in five people asked couldn't name a single country in the Commonwealth, you know, not India, not Jamaica, not even Australia. And so this speaks to the kind of amnesia around the violence of empire. And it's what allows the outsourcing of this kind of violence, such as the project that Priti Patel just announced of, you know, trying to process and export potential asylum seekers before they've even been able to make their application heard with the agreement with Rwanda. I think that what we need to do if we want to move forward and kind of compete against the ability for government to outsource and externalize this violence of the British state is by having a much more global, much more internationalist understanding of Britain's history and its role in the world and the impact that it has in terms of the possible future. You know, the understanding that the story of someone, yeah, who is coming from Iran or Nigeria, you know, and is talking about their family's relationship towards the United Kingdom 
all the way up until 2022. Like that is a British story. That is part of the story of this global project that we call Britain, as much as the story of somebody from Bath or Brighton or places that we're much more familiar with. There is a global history here. And this is going to be very important if we think about facing up to the challenges that are coming in the 21st century, which are also going to be global, whether they be climate change, whether they be further pandemics, whether they be migration crisis, whether they be wealth inequality. These are global problems and we need to understand, you know, to use the phrasing of the government, we need to understand global Britain's role in creating so many of these problems. Absolutely. Just before we wrap up, I wanted to pick up on uh, something you said there around around the Commonwealth and the kind of collective amnesia. Around the mid 20th century, when British colonies began to win their independence, you know, as listeners may or may not know, a lot of newly decolonized countries really wanted to prosper outside of the empire, but they were often scuppered. And I think it's really important if we're trying to kind of debunk and undo some of this collective amnesia that we talk about the how and the why that happened. So I'd love it if you could just share a little bit more about that. And also, if you wanted to throw in something around what's happening in the Commonwealth countries at the moment around kind of resistance to the monarchy and getting rid of the queen of the head of state, that would be a nice little cherry on top as well. No problem. No, no, I'll, I'll try and wrap all those up. Um, but I think, like you say, there's so much resonance between them that we can we can hold all those questions together. Yeah, a big part of the book is also just retelling the story of decolonization, this major world-changing transformative moment that happened in the middle of the 20th century which we all know next to nothing about in britain despite the fact that britain is pretty much the main character in these stories you know if we're you know around the world people's independent struggles in you know nigeria and all these different territories ghana botswana kenya you know Jamaica, Barbados, all of these places have their national story about gaining independence from Britain. And then in Britain, we have no idea about any of these these places, even if we're talking to places like India or places like China. I start the book with this incredible story of Tony Blair, which he writes in his autobiography, of facilitating the handover of Hong Kong back to China, speaking to the Chinese premier, who's essentially alluding to hopefully now China and Britain can put their long, violent history behind them. And Tony Blair says, I have no idea what he's talking about, because, you know, he's talking about the Opium Wars, which is this massive historical significant event in Chinese national memory, start of a hundred years of humiliation, as it's called in China. But even though Tony Blair receives, you know, the best education money can buy in terms of the United Kingdom, he has no idea about the Opium Wars and what happened and why does it matter. And for me, I think that that's probably just quite a kind of self-defeating way for Britain to enter into the 21st century, to have no idea about its own history with places like India or Nigeria or China, which are going to be world significant powers. And so what I try and do a lot in the book is retell the story of decolonization, look at, you know, Nkrumah and Ghana, look at Manly in Jamaica, look at Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, look at Mossadegh with Iran. And in terms of an overarching argument, really show how a big challenge that decolonization posed to global capitalism was that now it was multiplying the powers of sovereignty around the world. So if you were the Anglo-Iranian oil company, if you were the Royal Niger company, before, even if you operated from Africa, 
to the UK, to the Caribbean, you were operating under one jurisdictional umbrella, the British Empire. Now you had four, five, six different governments who could all place different tax demands, all place different labor regulations on you, all place different challenges to your ability to extract and transfer wealth across the world, which at its fundamental basis is what empire was about. Everything else, the racism, the symbolic stuff, the cultural ideology was placed on top of that fundamental basis of being able to extract and transfer money across the world. And so with that being challenged, what we have in the decades following the 1950s and really accelerating in the 1970s and the 1980s is the backlash against decolonization. We get the kind of example of a coup d'etat against Mossadegh that I gave a little bit earlier with the Anglo-Iranian oil company is kind of like a crude prelude to the much more insidious way in which the decolonized governments are gutted of their power in the 1970s and 1980s. No longer now do we need, you know, explicit coup d'etats. Now we can weaponize the IMF and the World Bank. We can weaponize conditional loan agreements. We can weaponize structural adjustment programs to open up these economies to the interest of private capital, to weaken the ability for these sovereign governments to place demands on the corporations that operate within their territory, to facilitate this kind of neo-colonial economic relations, as Nkrumah says, when he recognizes how, even though he's got the powers of sovereignty, he's still under the thumb of, you know, say, the Afanshanti Goldfields Corporation in terms of Ghana. These weaken the power of the decolonized world, and they're a key part of the resurgence of free market capitalism that we in the West tend to call neoliberalism. You don't get neoliberalism without the kind of death of decolonization first. And so I try and tell those stories together. And ultimately, in terms of the conclusion of that, I try and leave us in a place where we think about in the United Kingdom was the defeat of the decolonized governments beneficial for everyday working class people in countries like the United Kingdom today? You know, was the defeat of the Mossadegh regime and the victory of the Anglo-Iranian oil company a massive success for people of Britain today? Was the unleashing of global corporate power and the unleashing of wealth inequality and the acceleration of the 1% that wouldn't have been possible without the death of decolonization, is that something that is benefiting and helping everyday people trying to make their lives in the United Kingdom today? And I make the argument that it isn't. I make the argument that the opening up and gutting of the social safety net that happened to the decolonized countries in the middle of the 20th century is slowly starting to bleed its way back even into the so-called developed world in the 21st century. Not that obviously these things are the same, you know, you don't have the same levels of poverty in London as you do in Lagos. So I make the argument that, you know, what happens in the decolonized world is happens there first and worse, but it does create the conditions for the weakening of labor relations, for the gutting of the welfare state, for the imposition of austerity, for the general accelerating wealth inequality that we're wrestling with even in the United Kingdom today. And by trying to tell those stories together, I think we do create a potential new conversation, new alliance between those who are interested in neoliberalism, in the left behind, in the growing inequality in the United Kingdom, and those who are interested in the histories of race and empire 
in places like Africa and the Caribbean and, you know, in South Asia. Finally, thinking about the, the role of the monarchy and the way in which we're getting this rejection of the monarchy in the Caribbean. We saw with William and Kate's recent tour in the Caribbean, very much this this strength of, of, of rejection against what they represent. I think this is, again, another example of trying to move beyond the politics of symbolism and the politics of representation into the more substantive structural politics. You know, it's been very much presented as all these countries are, you know, for their own ideas around racial resentment. You know, they've been hyped up by Black Lives Matter and now they want to just reject the Queen, even though all the Queen is is a symbolic figurehead that doesn't mean anything. And, you know, they're just trying to express anger for 400 years of slavery and colonialism that has nothing to do with life in Jamaica and the United Kingdom today. You know, this is the way that it's being dismissed in the press. But the idea of the monarch of the United Kingdom being the constitutional head of state of places like Jamaica and Barbados, you know, before they remove them, isn't simply symbolic. This has a significant material impacts in terms of how their entire state operation functions, in terms of their military, in terms of things like the Queen's Privy Council. So the Queen's collection of private advisors essentially continues to be the highest court in the land for places like Jamaica and, of course, the British Overseas Territories like the Cayman Islands and the BVI. And so if you find yourself, you know, in a courtroom in Jamaica and then you go to a court of appeal and you go to appeal after that, eventually the highest decision that you will face is from the Judicial Committee of the Queen's own private advisors. This is a significant consequence of the way in which their legal system functions, and this is a result of having the British monarch as their head of state. These constitutional questions are fundamental to our understanding of not just our country, but the rest of the world. You know, I think it was interesting when we had the conversation around the protests against Will and Kate's um, visit to the Caribbean, you know, so many people that were being interviewed in terms of the United Kingdom were like, well, I didn't even realize that the Queen was also the Queen of Jamaica and these other places, that this isn't like that they are representatives of an old kind of museum-like relic. No, this is part of how their constitutional structure functions today. And it's, again, part of how the British state extends itself and extends its tentacles across the globe. And if we want to change that and we want to have that confrontation around, well, what kind of country do we want to be? This is what the conversation should have happened when decolonization emerged in the middle of the 20th century. There should have been a national conversation around what type of country does the UK want to be if it's no longer going to be a global empire? What kind of constitutional setup do we want to have? Should we have a written constitution, for example, like every other country in the world, pretty much? You know, what do we want to do about the kind of unelected role of the hereditary aristocracy with something like the House of Lords? What do we want to do with the monarchy? What do we want to do about the union? What's the relationship between Scotland and England outside of what brought them together in the first place, that imperial project? You know, these are all questions that are starting to determine our politics and our society today as well as, well, what type of economic structure do we want to have if we don't want an economy that's essentially based upon the global extraction of wealth from around the world and have laws and policies that facilitate that? I think that this could be an opportunity to really think about what type of country does the UK want to be and what type of role does it have in the world, but it's not going to be able to do that until it really faces up to the fundamental role that empire played in the coherence of Britain as we know it today.
And I mean, what a pressing and exciting conversation to be having. I mean, it seems like there's so much to learn from the the countries in the Commonwealth that are starting to kind of have that conversation as well around what does a a kind of existence and a sovereignty post-monarchy look like? And as you say, this kind of boomerang effect that we've been talking about throughout this episode of kind of what happens in the colonies kind of coming back, it seems like that could be a really positive manifestation of that, right? Um, That conversation coming back here as well especially in the midst of all the crises that we're currently facing. That is sadly all we've got time for. I could speak to you all day about this um, and there's a ton of stuff I didn't get to, but I wanted to make sure that you have a chance to cover everything that you wanted. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or do you feel like we broadly got the highlights? No, I think I think that's, you know, broadly got, got the main stuff. There's also, you know, some some jokes in the book as well so it's not just all, <laughs> not just all miserable detailing of you know the anglo-iranian oil companies gutting of of, of, of the social democracy <laughs> in iran you know we try and get a couple of jokes in there as well and so um hopefully these conversations and it's in you know the book is in dialogue with so many other books and projects that are around in both the new economic kind of conversation around wealth inequality around sovereign control around cooperative control and you know conversations around legacies of empire thinking about about how that impacts our experience with different racial groups experience of society today and so i'm just i think the book's in dialogue with hopefully a bunch of different excellent projects and um as well as what you guys are doing and new economics foundation so thank you for having me on no thank you so much kojo and as someone who's who's read the book i really can't recommend it enough to listeners it's one of the most brilliant and insightful things i've probably ever read to be honest and I, and i don't say that i don't say that lightly um i think you're very humble kojo coming on and saying oh yeah, it has jokes and it's in dialogue with all these other things but it is a, a really kind of remarkable feat what you've achieved and i'm i'm just so glad it's out there in the world and i'm so grateful i've had a chance to speak to you about it um thank you so much if people want to to find out more about your work other than grabbing a copy of your book uncommon wealth uh where else can they go what should they read uh anything else out there about dr kojo karam <laughs> yeah um so um they can find me i guess on twitter um just at kojo karam and then yeah i think another book that i'm really proud of is a, it was a co-authored book with seven other brilliant authors sia balani nadine alnani gargi bacharian um luke denarona um Adam Elliot Cooper, I think that's it, and then me, Karim Nisanjolo, of course, as well, which is called Empire's Endgame. And um, that's like all seven of us, you know, they're some of the most brilliant intellectuals and writers that I'm lucky to be in conversation with. And we all wrote this kind of short intervention in the role of empire in the British state in the kind of aftermath of the Brexit moment. So, yeah, I hope people might enjoy reading that as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. That is it for today's new economics podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's also the final episode of the series, Sob, uh, but we'll be back soon with more. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode and the series, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us align with your comments and questions we're at nef on twitter the new economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation produced by becky malone and researched by margaret welsh i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe